right, welcome to Talk is Jericho. It's the plot of thunder and rock and roll. And set the reminder on your phone. Don't forget, March 15th, 2017. It's the biggest podcast ever. When Mick Foley joins Talk is Jericho. You heard the big announcement last Friday. So let the countdown begin. Only 287 days and counting until the biggest podcast ever. But today... We got another huge podcast in its own right. One of the biggest guitar players, one of the greatest guitar players, one of the most critically acclaimed fan favorite virtuosos on the axe of all time is here talking about Joe Satriani. That's right. Joe taught Kirk Hammett from Metallica, Alex Skolnick from Testament, Larry Lalonde from Primus. He taught all those guys how to play guitar. Uh, he helped Steve Vai learn a few tricks. Joe toured with so many great bands from Mick Jagger and his solo band, which is a uh, hilarious stories. He's also, of course, a member of Chickenfoot with Sammy Hagar, uh, Chad Smith, and Michael Anthony. He has plenty to say about Sammy in the studio on the road. He was also even in Deep Purple for a while, and plus one of the most accomplished solo artists, one of the most long-running solo artists of all time, Satch, as his friends call him, will give us a little insight into the making of his latest opus, Shockwave Supernova. Get your air guitar ready. Satch is on the way, baby. All right, got some huge stuff coming up this week, uh, including the brand split wb brand split i think it's a pretty cool concept i think uh it worked so well before when we did it back in I don't know if it's 2002 or 2003 or something when they first did it the first time. And the funny thing about it is, um, as you guys know, sometimes the WWE likes to um, keep you guessing as as one of the talents, which is always hilarious as uh, for you guys to probably hear this. But I remember the first time there was a draft, um, the idea at the time was is that the world champion – uh, would be on both shows, so the world champion would not get drafted. So I had just lost the undisputed championship to Triple H. So, and don't ask me why this was the case, but it was a uh, three-way match between Jericho, Triple H, and Stephanie McMahon. Okay, uh, that was the uh, the lineup, and because we wouldn't know who was going to be the champion, that there we weren't actually drafted that night on the show. So of course I lose the match, and then. Um, they said that the other people that weren't drafted on the show would be drafted in a, in a supplemental draft that you would find out online who wins and who loses or not who wins, who, who, who goes where, who goes to Ron, who goes to SmackDown. So I had to call Lenny, Dr. Luther. You just heard him a couple of weeks ago. This is the days before there was cell phones. So I had to call Lenny and say, Hey man, can you keep an eye on your computer and find out um, what show i've been drafted onto because i don't even know so i found out that i was going to smackdown via lenny finding out online so for those of you who think sometimes oh there's no way they're kayfabing people yes they did kayfabe me the whole damn uh night into the night to where i actually had to call my friend to find out what show i was going to be on great right so then uh, a few years later i think they had another draft maybe I can't remember because I was back and forth quite a bit, but I think a few years later there was another draft where it's it's a pretty mind uh, racking, gut wrenching experience because you really don't know who's going where. So they actually have us sitting in the back of the of the arena, you know, like a bunch of marks. We're all in our gear, ready to go, and it's like round one, and they go they go through the kind of the the lottery system, the the slot machine. Triple H is on Raw. 
you know, Jericho's on SmackDown. So when you're waiting back there, it's just like you really don't know what's going on. And it's kind of like I remember when I was on Dance with the Stars and just waiting for them to call your name that you're safe. And then either you are or you aren't. If you aren't, you just feel terrible. That's what it's like when you get drafted. It's scary because you really don't know. And it's almost like when you're trying to figure out, you know, what class you're in, uh, you know, when you show up uh, at high school. And it's like, well, I hope I'm in the same class as my, you know, my friend Charlie or my friend Dave. And it's like you need to start analyzing well, who can I, who, who's going to be there, you know, when we travel to England. I hope you know the Samoan guys are on it or Ambrose or whatever so I'm a little bit nervous I don't know where I'm going to end up and they really don't tell us so don't think that I'm working you but I think it's good for the company as a whole it'll give a whole uh, bunch of new guys some extra airtime and some spotlight that they actually need to develop and to get better as performers and uh, a little bit more emphasis and make it a little bit different which is which is always good so Bring on the draft, I say. I'm excited about it, and I'll keep you posted if I get any more news. And also, uh, bring on Joe Satriani. He's got a huge European tour starting up June 18th. He's at Hellfest in France. 20th, he's in Dublin. 22nd, Amsterdam. 23rd, Brussels. 24th, Zwall in the Netherlands. Uh, all over the place. He's in Denmark. He's in Norway. He's in uh, Aarhus. Anywhere, Rome, lots of places. Just go to satriani.com. Check on the uh, Surfing to Shockwave Tour 2016. He is going to be destroying it. Great, great guitar player and a great, great guest. And I also got some other news to share about another great guest I have. I'm talking about Jake the Snake Roberts. And his documentary, The Resurrection of Jake the Snake, is uh, finally available on DVD and Blu-ray. And Diamond Dallas Page and his crew have really outdone themselves with all the amazing extras they included on this release. You really got to check Check this out. It's one of the best documentaries I've seen. Kind of the rags to riches story of Jake the Snake and his recovery from certain death uh, to a healthy, uh, happy uh, uh, guy right now, thanks to Diamond Dallas Page. And there's 20 bonus features, including a commentary track narrated by Dallas, Jake himself, and director Steve Yu. One of the best documentaries you'll see, whether you're a wrestling fan or not, and that's the truth. To see Jake the Snake battle back from certain death, reclaim his life, his family, his career, it's so inspirational. It's a powerful story about redemption and second chances. And right now you can get the collector's edition of The Resurrection of Jake the Snake at jakethesnakemovie.com. And if you use my promo code Y2J, you can get 10% off anything you buy for a limited time. But hey, we're going to hook up one lucky winner right now. If you want to win a free copy of the collector's edition Blu-ray, tweet Resurrection of Jake the Snake Blu-ray to Talk is Jericho at Talk is Jericho and at RealDDP and use the hashtag DDPYoga. Okay, I'll choose one random winner. Once again, you want to win a free copy of the Collector's Edition Blu-ray, you just got to tweet Resurrection of Jake the Snake Blu-ray to at Talk is Jericho and at Real DDP, hashtag DDP Yoga, all right? Once again, you got to see this documentary. I'm telling you, it is something you'll never forget. Uh, you'll be inspired and you'll want to get your own life back on track if you're having issues. Uh, and then you want to give DDP Yoga and the DDP Yoga Now app a try uh, yourself. Don't forget, take advantage of the special deal for you Sexy Beast listeners of Talk is Jericho. Just go to DDP yoga.com slash Jericho get three free months of the DDP yoga now app with your purchase of DDP yoga three free months of one of the best physical fitness apps I've ever seen in my life so change your life go to DDP yoga.com slash Jericho be inspired and check out the resurrection of Jake the snake pick it up now at Jake the snake movie.com you won't regret it all right so uh, after a long arduous journey 
we finally have the big meeting between Jericho and Satriani, <laughs> and it's uh, it's great. We've, we've been trying to, do, to organize this for a couple months. I know, I know. Weather, acts of God, everything. <laughs> yeah, there really was. There was a weather problem. I was yeah. supposed to fly to San Fran. There was scheduling, and then today you had a big uh, a VIP meet and greet, which there's right. traffic and everything. So, but it, it, it's it's great to see because I mean, I was thinking about it being the pioneer of of instrumental guitar music. Oh. Thirty years later, still, and I know you're gonna not, you're a humble guy, but you're still the top guy in the field. And it, it, what a, what longevity for something that's so basically a niche market in it a is, lot of ways. Yeah. You know, I, I always call it like a sub niche. That's what I call it. A sub niche. A sub niche. I don't know. That's I don't even know how you spell that, or it's hyphenated, <laughs> or what. But I, you know, I started off completely by accident. I really wasn't thinking that I could. That I could do that. I was trying to be in a rock band. That's where. That's how I grew up playing. Just the the Led Zeppelin, Black Sabbath mold. That was the thing that I was trying to really succeed sure. with. So this happened by accident. And uh, if I ever would look to some other artists to back me up in this sort of plan, I think. Well, I said Jeff Beck. He's pretty damn good, you know. And he's he keeps changing. He keeps reinventing himself. He's an absolutely amazing player. Uh, and and cool performer. So um, there were a few guys that I did look at, and I thought it, it could be done. I mean, once once I jumped in the water, I thought, okay, I got to swim now. Mm-hmm. So um, I could look to to a couple of guys. But it, you're right. In rock, there's not too many. Well, because like you said, though, Jeff Beck would be another guy who's basically made his career off of mostly instrumental music as well, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, besides like the early days of the Birds or whatever, maybe Yardbirds, Yardbirds, yes, yeah. yeah. So, but since then, I mean, Jeff would be the 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 '60s '70s version, and you're like the '80s '90s now version of it. I guess so. You, you know? know, jazz had you know Wes Montgomery. He was a big hero of mine. Um, not my generation's music. You know what I mean? I was just a rock kid, so. Uh, but all the bands that I really loved were bands with singers. Mm-hmm. So, but there was always something about them. I would always I'd focus in on the instrumental part of it. You know, like with Page, uh, Zeppelin always had this heavy music thing. They put a lot of effort into not only where Jimmy Jimmy sat there in the band, but the arrangements of the songs. They were heavier. They they were more thoughtful, mm-hmm. more certainly more inspiring to me than some other bands that that we're trying to be like them you know what i mean so even if it was like i said before sabbath or or zeppelin or even hendrix and my, my all-time favorite i sort of always made a beeline for the instrumental bits mm-hmm. you know what i mean so. well and also too when you talk about zeppelin or, or sabbath as well you could take out the vocals and listen to those songs as, as instrumentals you could you, you you could as far as the musical uh, the power of it yeah, yeah. you know because what you do is instead of having a vocal line you'll play a guitar melody line that's right yeah <laughs> so instead of the vocals it's just a guitar you could do that with Zeppelin or, or, or Sabbath I think I think you could and because they had that thing that happened you know as I guess as I, as I was being born music in Europe and then in the States started to catch on to the fact that the sound that they made was part of the message. Before then, it was melody, harmony, rhythm, lyrics. But as society changed and technology got into music, the sound became part of the message. And then there were some people where the sound was the message. Just the tone of the band meant that's who you related to. They stood for your tribe, so to speak. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? And certainly Sabbath was like that. They had a sound that was unlike anybody else. And like you said, when when Ozzy wasn't singing, it was almost enough because the sound carried the message right. that they were trying to send out to you. 
Um, and so I grew up with that. That's that's just me. That's I'm always thinking the sound is so important. But if I'm playing a melody, it's got to be as edited down as a great set of lyrics. It's not an opportunity for me to show off, you know, lead guitar. There is a break. There'll be a lead guitar break somewhere yeah. in the song. Not all the songs, but it. I try to make the melody work as good as any melody that you've heard in the last 500 years. You could years. sing it. You yes, could hum it. You could. And I remember seeing... Uh, Would you do that for me right now? Would you? <laughs> there you go. But I remember, did you ever see a Rush uh, Rush Live in Rio? I think it was from, I don't know, 2003 or something like this. Yeah. And they did YYZ, YYZ mm-hmm. if you're a true Canadian. <laughs> and the whole crowd is jumping up and down, singing the melody line, da 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 la la da da da, thirty thousand strong. That's that's the vocal part of the song, yeah. the guitar melody of yeah. it. That's, so it's something that works. It's amazing when that happens. Yeah, you know what that's like when the audience starts singing back at you. That's super powerful. Like I think about, we did a, sh- a short tour of India a couple of years ago. Wow, maybe over ten years ago now. And I remember t- playing in this cricket field around midnight, not knowing what was going to happen, but to hear twenty thousand. Indians sing Flying in a Blue Dream. It was just, I mean, we were all in the band. We're looking at each other like, is this really happening? Like, wow. Singing a song with no lyrics. With no lyrics. And they all knew it and they all sang together just perfectly well. It was so powerful, you know. It's, wow. So I believe in the melody for sure. And and that's, I remember like, I grew up in Canada in Winnipeg. And I remember probably 88 or 89 on the rock radio station, CJ92, no, it's Calgary. It was, what was it? City FM? I remember, City FM, 92 City FM. And between the rock songs, they, they would drop in a summer song or a Satch Boogie or a Crush. Uh, crush of Love. Crush of Love. God bless them, so, <laughs> wherever they are now. <laughs> yeah, I think they actually still exist, believe it or not, wow. as rare as that may be. But how, how like... Not to give a history lesson, but how were you able to crack into the rock radio market in that time frame, the late 80s, when there was no instrumental music on the radio? And there really still isn't to this day. No, no. I have no idea. I mean, it has to be the good heart and the good set of ears of the program (laughs) directors and the DJs who would pioneer it. And I know back then, the DJs had a little bit more power. You know, they could walk in and say, I heard this, we should play it, and they'd get it on the air. Uh, There were certain... Uh, markets around the U.S. that had DJs that were just champions of what I was doing. And they would just play it and play it. And every time people would call in, they'd bring those results to the program director and say, I know this isn't coming from Playlist Central (laughs) Incorporated, wherever that may be, but uh, this is what the people are are saying. They're saying, play it again. So, um, yeah, I I mean, I owe everything to those guys who who played the tracks because there was no good reason to play them. <laughs> you know what I mean? There was not there was no muscle behind us or anything. I was signed to Relativity, which was a small division of uh, important record distributors, which was this little funky building out by the, <laughs> the by Kennedy Airport in Jamaica Queens. I mean, it was it was funky, but um, everybody w- believed in it. You know, mm-hmm. especially this guy Cliff Coltrary. He was probably what you'd call the, the head of A&R for Relativity. And, and he was a guitar player himself, and he was, he was just such a believer. He just motivated everybody on that team to tell people about the records. That's, hmm. you know, and that's what you have to do. You've got to be introduced and say, you got to you know, forget about what he looks like. Because they always just say to me, 
you don't look right. <laughs> As a matter of the Gee, first, thanks. <laughs> yeah, the first time I met the president of the company, uh, that's what he said, Barry Coburn. He, I'm standing there in the office in front of everybody, and he's looking at me, and, he, and he's like laughing nervously, and he goes, y- you don't look like a rock star. <laughs> it was like, yeah, I know. And then he got, I don't really understand this record either. And, you know, but Cliff would be there saying, no, just shut up. This guy, people are going to love him, you know, so. Maybe because it was something completely different, something new. It was different. Yeah. And, and I did everything I could not to be like a lot of my friends who were very successful, like Steve I. I, I always thought Steve fit perfectly for that time. He was tall, good looking, had long hair. Mm. He looked great in cowboy boots and leather and everything. And he could play guitar like nobody else. So, right. And he went from, from Zappa and he was in White Snake and David Lee Roth. And so it's like, well, that's a natural, you know, but I, I realized they looked at me and they went, he comes from nowhere <laughs> and he's like, you know, half the size. <laughs> so they just couldn't figure it out. Yeah. The, 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 the kind of the sh- curly afro-esque hair at it the just, time. It never worked. <laughs> but the thing is, you, you just mentioned Steve because I became hip to Steve when he joined David Lee Roth. Like I knew the name cause I was reading all the magazines. So he was yeah. in Alcatraz and yeah, Alcatraz, Zappa. Yeah. But being in David Lee Roth, suddenly he was accessible. Okay. Now I get it. So when he put out a solo record afterwards mm. with the audiences listening and all those songs on it, yeah. I already knew who he was. But once again, those songs weren't on rock radio. Your songs were. Yeah, mine were a little... Yeah, I suppose when I'm writing a song, I'm more hard on myself when it comes to editing. Mm. And I I just take stuff out all the time. And in the studio, guys will say, like, that's a, you know, that'll make you famous. You know, people are going to shake their heads when they get to that part. But I listen to it and I go, that's too much. That's that's overstaying mm-hmm. my welcome or it's... it's it's not about the song. So maybe the difference is that, you know, it probably does me in, right? <laughs> uh, it's, is that I'm thinking about the, the story behind the song, the original inspiration, and I'm writing only to that. And then I just keep writing that. And then when there's a space that I think it needs something, if it calls for something unusual, I'll do it. If I don't know how to do it, I'll teach myself how to do it and I'll practice it until I can pull it off. But it's it's not the other way where I say to myself, I can do this thing that no one else can do this trick. So I'm going to write a song around it mm-hmm. and shine the light right on my fingers when I do it. To me, that just that just hits me the wrong way. So <laughs> the restraint that you use, because back at that time, once again, when you first became you know a name, it was all about like the wank value. Yes, yeah. and and you probably won't give any names, but I would like for example. There's two albums that I listen to, and and one is a little bit taboo, but I'll say with the first Living Color record with Vernon Reed, yeah, and then the Vinnie Vincent records. Yeah, Vin, Vin, there's yeah. so much just. Yeah. It's it's like you can't. You just want to shoot the bee, like <laughs> you never. You must have been looking sometimes at some of those guys and going, "Oh, I could just whip all their asses," but I won't because <laughs> I'm going to just err on the side of melody. You know, I I think that I think that the uh, you know the. The curse, that's also a blessing. All artists have it, you know. Whatever it is, their sense of taste or their emotional uh, attitude towards, in this case, music, um, it defines how we react when the red light is on or when we're in front of an audience. So, I mean, I I will drop to my knees and play with my teeth, so I'll I'll admit that. I'll do that to get a rise out of the audience. But there are things, if I think it it doesn't fit musically, I won't do it. So when I hear other players 
fill up the spaces, I think, well, what's he doing? What what has this got to do with the song that's playing right now? Mm-hmm. Very often, it's not. Very often, you can you can stand back and say, I see this guitar player he's a passenger going from one band to the next and he's making sure he looks good every time they give him eight bars he's going to say look at me you know Mm -hmm. in a way that's cool that's like a rock and roll bad boy attitude so and sometimes it works but i think you got to be sensitive to when it doesn't work and sometimes a song doesn't need a solo or it needs the guy to just lay out you know what i mean i certainly learned that playing uh, with Sammy and the guys in Chickenfoot, that some songs, all of us realized that we had to just lay back a little bit sometimes to to make the song work. And uh, since those guys have been in bands forever, they know all about that. It comes natural to them. Guitar players, we're a funny breed. You know, we spend a lot of time in our room just sitting there, <laughs> you know. And so uh, sometimes that social skill of being in a band can be lost. You know, I see that a lot, you know. Was that interesting for you, like joining a band where you're actually, obviously Joe Saturani has a band, but it's based around you as the focal point. Right, Now you're joining Chicken Foot, where you have four huge rock and roll Hall of Famers, basically. (laughs) Yeah. You know, three three Hall of Famers and you. Yeah, You're like the lesser name now. I am. (laughs) I'm nothing in that band. (laughs) I just write all the music and see if they like any of it, you know. Um, Was that kind of fun for you? Is it challenging, sort of, if nothing else? It's total chaos party you know it'll get you you know gets me screaming mad and and it puts the biggest smile on my face and um and it's an adventure uh when we're tracking it's like the height you know it's just fantastic because they're they're so live mike and chad are just so good Mm. they're just so natural you know we do those records with no click tracks or nothing it's just we're just in a room a little bit bigger than this staring at each other seeing who remembers how the song goes because everything's written and tracked in about two and a half hours so it's really fast um and sometimes sam is actually making up the lyrics on the spot and cutting 50 percent of them right there in wow. front of you so it's everything's very tense but very fun at the same time you know um it's not like lay down the click put down the bass do the keyboard <laughs> yeah, you know yeah, yeah. do the fake rhythm and, and all that kind of stuff uh, there's never never time for reflection unless like this new track we just did it was done where no one was ever in the same room at the same time so i wrote a song recorded a demo sent it to sam he got excited wrote the song in one afternoon did all the vocals sent it to chad chad did the drum somewhere else came back up to san francisco mike put his bass on then mike came back again and he and sam added background vocals three weeks later i put on a solo now that's it's great. done. Now it's in the can. So you have a new chicken foot song we in do. the can. We wow. do. Wow. Yeah. Well, that's, that's I wish, great. I wish we could debut it on this yeah, channel it's an exclusive, right now. It's an exclusive. Yeah. Hey, give me the permission. We'll play it. Yeah. But, I mean, but that's the thing. Like, it, it's interesting when you were talking about something I wanted to kind of go back to when you mentioned as far as the restraint of a solo. And I saw this great thing, and you, you'll you'll appreciate this. It was when the Stones did their um, kind of reunion show in about 2012 when they hadn't played for a while. They did right. a pay-per-view. Right. And they had this, uh, I'm going down, I'm going down, down, down. Yeah. And it was Keith. Ron Wood and Gary Clark Jr. and John Mayer. Great. Now, I mean, all Fantastic of them. players. Yeah. All of them, right? Yeah. So they were trading off solos, and Gary did his thing, and John did his thing, and Ronnie played some wicked slide guitar. And Keith went up there and just hit, he just went, <laughs> wow, and then just left, right? Wow. It was like, but he was like so badass and doing it. Yeah. So fast forward about a month or so, I had the pleasure of meeting him, and I asked him about that. I said, 
so I saw this great solo thing and 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 uh, you just played one note and you killed. He said, "Well, everyone was so busy." <laughs> that I thought I would just pick one note and stick with it, man. Yeah. But make sure it's a good one. <laughs> like, that's like, yeah, there's the secret, right? Wow, yeah. You know? That, well, you played with Mick Jagger. I did, yeah. I'll tell you, that period, you have to imagine, like, I finished surfing with the alien in, in uh, summer of uh, 87. Mm-hmm. This is ancient history, so you'd, you'd finish a record, you'd pass around cassettes for months. No one pirated stuff, you know? Yeah. So that's what was happening, and we got a late October release date. By the time we're, we're inching up to that, and the thing gets on the Billboard charts, which blew me away anyway, I think it was 186 was our debut number. What album was that? Surfing with the Aliens. Right? Surfing, I'm sorry. Okay. So that's uh, October of 87. Stock market crashed the day we released the, the record. That's an important little fact I always keep in my mind. <laughs> and uh, how good and bad happen, happens at the same sure, time. Yeah. And uh, a couple of weeks later, the, the, uh, the president of the company says, you've got to go on tour to support the record. It's going to be a hit. And I said, well, number one, I don't have a band. Number two, I've never played instrumental music in front of an audience before, so I have no idea what I'm doing. So he said, well, better learn fast, you know. <laughs> so we we did hit the road. I gave him a last lesson to Kirk Hammett, right, in, in Berkeley, California. I went out. Uh, I started. We were out on the road for about two and a half weeks, and I got a call from my friends at Bill Graham Management, who based in San Francisco, yeah. but they were in New York City unbeknownst to me they had been running the jagger solo tour it still hadn't started but they'd been in new york city for a couple of i don't know six pre-production for it or something yes okay. right they still couldn't find the right lead guitar player so they call me up and they say we hear you're close by i was in boston at the time and would you like to audition for mick jagger and i was like of course i and i said you know i'm not going to get it but i just got to get in the room just get me in the room right because <laughs> i was just a fan so um Everything was just very cool. Mick was cool. He was just like the greatest guy ever. And uh, I got the gig, and it kind of saved my ass in a way because the tour was not going well. We were doing two shows, two shows a night in clubs around the, uh, around the country, and uh, we were losing lots of money. And I didn't really have a manager at the time. <laughs> and so the Jagger gig sort of steps in. And it's like, whew, okay, now I've got like a break from this whole solo career stuff. Yeah. So while I'm with Mick, the record just keeps just raging up the charts. By the time we're in Japan, it's on page one now, right? It's over in the top 100. And then by the time I was in Australia with Mick, let's say nine months later like that, it's sitting in the top 40 for six weeks. It was just crazy. Unbelievable. It was it was just a meteoric rise, really, from a guy who was really looking to get in the next Led Zeppelin if he could, you know, <laughs> to suddenly standing there all by himself you know, and I'm not a front guy, right? You you know that you're sitting yeah. right across from me. You know I'm not a lead singer type. You're a lead singer type. Right, right. But I'm not. I'm the guitar player guy. I like to be three steps behind the singer, right? <laughs> so, and all of a sudden, there I am. Everyone's looking at me, and I'm like, wow, okay. And so, I have to say that those those few months that I spent, we did two tours with Mick, and it was a learning experience because Mick was just like the consummate performer, he not only is blessed with just that magnetism, but he loved the audience. He did nothing but 100% every single night. But backstage, he was just one of the guys. Mm. He loved to party. He hated to rehearse. But he <laughs> wanted everyone to put on the greatest show ever every single night. Right to the last song. It was remarkable. So I, I felt like I had 
I was going to rock and roll school there in between learning how to be a, a solo Absolutely. artist, you know. What, what did you audition with to get to get the gig? Do you remember? Oh, that's a good question, Were yeah. Were they Stone songs or was yeah, it a lot of yeah. stuff too? From, from what I remember, I walked in, I plugged into uh, a Marshall half stack and that was sitting there that all the other guitar players had auditioned with. And I think they ran me through a bunch of Stone songs, but I knew all of them, so mm-hmm. it was no problem. Mm-hmm. Uh, Jimmy Rip, a local New York guitar player, was the rhythm player in the band so he did all the open tunings he was playing like keith he had the scarves and the whole <laughs> okay. thing right because keith plays in the weird tunings yes right? yeah. yeah 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 five string open g right. a lot of stuff like that um so i had to represent from brian jones all the way to jimmy page every lead guitar player that had Mick played taylor the, yeah all that stuff. ronnie wood yeah and i'm super fan of all of them so i could imitate him real easy and enjoy <laughs> it and apparently mick was on the other side of the door just listening maybe he thought i don't want to meet this guy if he's just sucks you know (laughs) so but he came running in and and he was just you know a ball of energy that he always is and and was very kind education like you said to go on tour with with mick jagger yeah he was amazing the way he arranged the tour the way he made everybody feel relaxed and but the way he elicited nothing but the best from everybody he expected that and you knew that but at the same time he you know he it we never listened to stuff after a show like he would never like call a meeting or something like that he'd never do that <laughs> he'd just joke around and if he heard something on stage he didn't like he'd just start talking to you or if he liked it, he like. I remember once I was playing a solo, and he came up and he bit me on the shoulder, and he was just wow, you know, screaming. <laughs> he was just in the moment, you know what I mean? Yeah. So uh, I love playing with him. He's he's a great guy. <laughs> that, that, like, oh, that's that's such a great experience. And then once again, having this other great experience of playing with Sammy Hagar as well. Yeah, yeah. that's two of the greatest frontmen in rock and roll history. I think so. I think you so. know, and you got yeah. to do. Was there? How about when you're playing with Sammy so many years later? Was it the same vibe? Because Sammy gives gives his all on every show as well. Every single show uh sammy is so complicated i gotta say that if he was here he'd, he'd be giving me something i can't say on your fine radio show but <laughs> with my fine listening audience uh but yeah no sam is is like a tornado of energy and emotion and when he hits the stage it's like the culmination of two hours that people don't see backstage i've never seen like most you know, big stars like yourself. I'm sure you're wearing a robe, your head's in a steamer. There's a sign outside. Really, it says, do not disturb Mr. Jericho. Do not look at Mr. Jericho. Exactly. Do not address him by name. I'm not looking at you right now, by the way. Don't even think about it either. Don't think of it, right. Don't do it. So, but no, Sam is there three, two and a half hours before the show, and he's making drinks, and he is on full on Sammy Hagar with everybody he meets everywhere all over the venue with the meet and greet with the staff with the you know and the rest of us like me and Chad are like leaning back like oh my god get this guy away from me (laughs) we got to get ready for a show and this guy's like you know he's blowing up and then so by the time he walks on the stage he just can't control himself anymore and that's what you have to watch out for and then when he and Mike get together it's just a big party and it but for me it's like the best roller coaster ride ever mm-hmm. you know what i mean and i love the fact that i'm not 
the soloist, right? Suddenly, I'm just like the Jimmy Page guy, if I may say so myself. But I'm I'm a wannabe Jimmy Page guy, <laughs> and I'm just hanging with Chad, you know. And it's like it's such a cool thing to be able to just play rhythm guitar for most of the song, three steps behind the singer. Yes, yeah. and I let Sammy do all that stuff, and he's he's drinking everything and he's partying. He is becoming, you know, one with the audience, which is really kind of in rock. The lead singer's got a, a lot to do. You know? Yeah, absolutely. You have to get the connection with the audience yeah. as the front man, you know? Yeah. I don't really seem like you're much of a party guy. No. But you're also meeting <laughs> with Sammy and Mick, who are like famous party guys. Yeah, I know. Right? It's, it's, it's very interesting. <laughs> but, you know, there is a big difference, whereas I would say Mick... When I met him, I have no idea what Mick was like right in the 60s. I'm sure he, sure, right. he did it all. But by the time I met him, he certainly was completely in control of himself. I never saw him lose control of himself as a way of uh, entertaining. Mm -hmm. um, but I've seen – and I've seen Sam – just like where you think this guy is going to explode or fall flat on his face, but he never does because he never goes there. He goes right before it where it's, he's, he's figured out where to find the most perfect, pitch perfect, like party vibe going. You yeah, know what yeah, I mean? Yeah, yeah, and, and then he's cool right there, but, it, but it's so exciting and it's infectious. You know what I mean? Everyone just goes crazy. So, Were you guys doing uh, all chicken foot songs or was, was there some mantras or some Van Halen or any of those type of tunes in there? You know, early on we decided we shouldn't do um, – I didn't want to do Eddie songs because right. I, I kept saying, you know – I'm a big fan of Eddie Van Halen, and by the way, he's still alive, and they still tour. <laughs> it's like, isn't that weird? Yeah. So, um, so I, so I just said, I'm, I'm not doing that, you know. Mm -hmm. And, um, and Chad didn't want to do that either. And he said, you know, we should do any Chili Pepper stuff. You know, let's not make it about that. It's because these things are ongoing. But when it came to Montrose, we thought, well, that's different. That's got a little bit more uh, history to it. And so. Um, you know, we played, uh, what did we do? We did a couple of Deep Purple songs. We, we would just throw stuff out there. You know, we do Bridge of Size. Why would we do that? I have no idea. <laughs> we do that and, and Mike would sing or something like that. And, uh, but we mainly, it was 99% just the foot stuff. Which is great, yeah. And we'd stretch it out. Right, right, yeah. right. The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed? Also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. It's uh, You mentioned it earlier, and there's so many ways we could go here. You mentioned Deep Purple. You were in Deep Purple for a tour. I mean, uh, but I wanted to hit back when you mentioned, you said you, gave, you probably told these stories a million times, but never here. <laughs> you said you did, gave your last lesson to Kirk Hammett. That's right, yeah. story that you, yeah. you, teached, you taught a lot of guys in that area, the Bay Area. Yeah. Kirk Hammett. Yes, I know. It's crazy, right? But who so, else is there? Uh, well, Alex Skolnick from Testament, yeah. Larry Lalonde, who was uh, uh, in, Primus. Uh, in Primus, obviously. He wasn't um, Possessed. And we actually pr produced an EP for them. For Possessed? Yes, yeah. What was the first EP called? Uh, I was probably At the Gates or whatever the thing was. Living in Hell or something. Something, whatever. <laughs> a nice title. Yeah. Um, that, that's a, there's a crazy story behind that. But Larry was a great guy, and, and he was a really good student, a, a great student of guitar in general. So he saved that record for us because the other guy was just totally out of it. Um, but um, 
uh, like Charlie Hunter, the, the great jazz guitar player. Um, he was a student. I had like Kevin Cadigan from Third Eye Blind. Um, the other guys from Exodus, Rookie You'll Note. Um, you think you got like half the thrash pioneers are your students? <laughs> are you a closet thrash fan, Joe? Well, yeah, but <laughs> I, there's an interesting story behind that because uh, like, you know, Kirk would come in and take a lesson, then it would be Larry and a bunch of other players who were equally as, as, as talented but were in bands that didn't quite make it. Um, uh, uh, David Bryson from County Crows would then take a lesson. So I had a, a variety of students, but that age group, I recognized really early on that they were creating a new genre of music. And uh, I started teaching, you know, when I was 15, when I was teaching Steve I back in our, our hometown. You taught Steve I too. So <laughs> I, I knew what it was like, even just a couple of years, that it separates, like in high school, if you remember, a few years in high school is really a generation in a way. And so there I am, I'm in my 20s, but I'm teaching these teenagers who are inventing thrash metal. And I thought, this is what's coming. This is mm. what's going to make the rest of us look old at some point. Right. And it's going to replace regular rock. It's going to become the classic rock of, of its day. And in the Bay Area at the time, it was all about new wave. You know what I mean? There was a lot of fashion and music going on. And I, I kept thinking, like, this isn't going to last. I think what these kids are doing, that I'm teaching them, you know, that, that's what's going to replace it. And sure enough, it did. You wow. Know? It yeah. was pretty exciting. So, I mean, are you talking about, like, you gave... A lesson to Kirk was he a regularly student? No, for, student for a couple of years. Really, before he hit with Metallica. Yeah, he was in Exodus when he started taking lessons, wow. and um, and was a great student. You know, he'd come in with Steve Ray Vaughan and Shanker stuff to learn, and Uli Broth, and he loves those guys. And uh, and who wouldn't? Uh, fantastic guitar players, great music, and but he was a good student. He wanted to, you know, he wanted to have his uh, horizons widened. You know, mm -hmm. uh, he wanted to see what else was out there. Um, and I always felt the same way, which was, you know, I should just pass on what I've learned. I just learned before them. So I always had that attitude. Like, I collected this. I'm using it. But here's this, you know, 15-year-old kid who knows what they want to do with it. I'm not going to stand in the way. So I was thinking, how can I show them this theory that I've learned without any style? And, it, and that was the key, especially when he got into Metallica. I kind of felt the weight of it. Mm -hmm. Like, do not, like impose your style on this guy because he's got a real job <laughs> you know what i mean and he knows what he wants so uh Did you talk to him about that and and, and give him advice about it or was i it would just like joe i'm in this band now i just i just say hey you know here's this information i'm gonna i'm gonna say these are your choices you know because he'd bring in like say a song they're working on and it would have this weird ass chord progression you know that didn't have anything to do with music theory that was written 300 years ago right <laughs> so I'd have to say, well, this is, you know, the notes in the in the chord progression make up the notes of the scale. And if there are more notes than are represented in one scale, then you've got to use more than one scale. If there are less notes, those notes are free notes. You make those up yourself. I'm not going to tell you mm -hmm. which ones to pick, but here are your choices. So he had to memorize the scales that I showed him. And he had to draw the the memorize the uh, connection between them because they're all modes of each other. I don't. I'm not give you a theory lesson no, that's right now. No, if anyone's going to do it, and make it interesting. It's right. So I tell him, look, a, a scale is like a set of numbers, one through seven, and it just keeps repeating. Right. If you imagine that in in your mind right now, one through seven, one through seven, one through seven, just keeps repeating. If you start from two to two, that has a different sound and a different feeling to the audience than if you go from three to three, or four to four, or five to five. So I said, you've got to memorize that 
and you've got to develop an opinion about that. And your opinion is going to turn out to be the Kirk Hammett style. That's mm. what they're going to hear. And that's all you got to do. With, to me, it seemed pretty simple. But it's a lot of legwork and it's boring and you want to go out and party, right? Not, sure. not study but, stuff but like that. But the fact that, that, I mean, you're almost like a, a guitar Yoda at this point with Steve I and Kirk Hammond and a Larry Yoda. A Gyoda. A Gyoda. <laughs> those, those are a lot of different types of styles of players that all kind of studied under your wing. I mean, that's a pretty, uh, pretty cool resume to have, so to speak. I was, I was very, very lucky as a guitar teacher. Mm-hmm. I mean, I taught little kids and I taught... Doctors, lawyers, race car drivers, and, and I would never lean on them. i just teach them whatever songs they wanted to learn to relax at home after a hard day. Or little kids, you know, they, the kids would come in and they'd put, like, toy men on the amp, and then they'd pick up the guitar and play. So I'm not going to, like, get heavy with the Phrygian dominant mode with them. But, but guys like Larry and Kirk and Alex, they'd come in and they'd say, man, just teach me everything lean on me hard what you know why do i suck how can i get better that kind of thing and of course they never suck they were always good they were mm-hmm. just fresh you know do you do you ever see those guys around and i do well we played yeah. quite a few shows with metallica um they've been very gracious and putting us on the shows it's always put saturani band on the shows yeah really yeah. yeah that's cool the last one we did was a couple of years ago uh, quebec city 120,000 people. We played right before them on the stage. It was very exciting. It must, you must get a good reaction, though. It was fantastic, yeah. You pull out the heavy tunes for those. Yeah, we don't do anything quiet. <laughs> <laughs> There's a lot, as Mick Jagger once said, this gig's more about waving <laughs> than it is about all the notes. It's a very, I always remember that. That's a great line, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Have you seen Mick at all in those yeah, days? Yeah, yeah. Last, last time they played in Oakland, yeah. You go by and hang out and say, Yes, hey, yeah. Still- but he, you know, he, unlike Sam, he's backstage. I know exactly what he likes to do, which is not talk. He's got the scarf on, and he's very, Hi, Joe, how are you doing? You know, it's my wife, and blah, blah, blah. You know, everything's very quiet. And, and the real singer yeah, style, yeah. yeah. Well, he sings full voice for like three hours. Hmm. It's amazing. And it was it's crazy to sit in the audience with performers that you know. You know how weird that is sometimes, yes. you know. But um I never feel that when I go see the Stones. For some reason he just is so believable as Mick Jagger, the yeah. singer in the Stones, you know what I mean? He it never breaks down and he's so he's in such great shape. I don't know how he does it, and his voice is huge still. Maybe better now than it was in the early eighties, I think. I think so. He can hear himself, you yeah. know, with the in ears, I right. think it really helped him quite a bit. Do you do uh, Big Bad Moon when you when you play live? Yes. So you still bust out your vocals. Yes, I do. <laughs> One song a night. That's all I can handle. <laughs> but once again, it was a hit song with you singing. I don't know what the heck happened, but every time you put something out, at least in Winnipeg, you should have come to Winnipeg in 89. You would have sold out the arena. Yeah. I but I mean, so. that was a huge oh, well. song for you with you actually singing. That's crazy, huh? They, they were all sung in character. That's basically... When, when I went in to do that record, I told... Uh, my co-producer and friend uh, John Quinnaberti, I said, "Look, I don't." He knew me from singing in this in this band, The Squares, which is a power pop band that went nowhere for five years. And I said, "I'm I'm done trying to be Joe, right?" So every song, there were six on that on Flying in a Blue Dream. I said, "It's just going to be a different character." So whatever we have to do to make this work, I don't care. Break out any microphone, I don't care. Just like <laughs> let's just make it work. So. 
But as I get older and my vocal range gets shorter and shorter and shorter, <laughs> there are those six notes I can hit. So that's big bad moon. <laughs> that's a real blues, like a how, 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 that's how, right. almost that type of thing. Though. Yeah, I'm just doing Billy Gibbons. Yeah, totally. A bad, right? a bad version of Billy <laughs> that Gibbons. That must be kind of fun for you, though, once a night to get out in front of the mic and sing. It, yeah, it is. You know? Yeah. I remember when I think the G3, when I saw you guys and Steve was doing it, he had him and Billy, they did Shy Boy and Billy sang Shy Boy. That's it was right, the yeah. one vocal track of the night where you're like, oh, this is cool. Yeah, yeah. Well, I used to sing um, uh, rock and roll, uh, keep on rocking in the free world. Mm -hmm. And I'd sing, uh, what else did we sing? I sang some uh, Going Down. That's easy. Mm -hmm. um, the only thing about that Neil Young song is the lyrics. Oh, my God. Those verses are just. I've covered that song before, too. There's a lot of words in those verses. Yeah. How do you sing toilet paper? <laughs> I mean, that's in the last <laughs> verse, right? Yeah, it is, yeah. We got cardboard, but we got toilet paper. I was just like, really? She's running away in a garbage can and whatever. It's like, yeah. yeah. You yeah. got to be a good singer to pull that off. Yeah, right? yeah. I, or at least at least have written the lyrics and believe in it. Yes. You know? Yeah, yeah. How do you pick a set list after 30 years, uh, especially when your new record? And it's funny because I know your new record, uh, I keep calling it Champagne Supernova. Thank you. Which is a uh, an oasis <laughs> song right but it's actually called shockwave, shockwave supernova. supernova right and i almost wrote that down on my hand i never have any questions but i was like i keep <laughs> up this uh this album title i mean he's gonna think i'm an idiot but i mean it's a very heavy heavy record i mean there's a lot of diversity on it but, mm. but the songs on there's a lot of great melodies and riffs in that too yeah do you want to focus on that do you have to go through the back catalog how do you do well, we, every time uh, i mean i'm sure I, as you've done it with fozzy every time you come up for a new a new record and a tour behind it you lean heavily on the new stuff but you have to sift through the catalog and see what do the fans really respond to what songs have become part of their lives that you have to do and i i know from meeting the fans a lot that very often, you might find 50% or more of the audience has never seen you before. This may be the only time they ever get to see you. So if you go out there and you play every stupid-ass, <laughs> obscure song of yours because you think it's cool, it's really a disservice to these fans who've supported you for all these decades, right? So I'm very sensitive to that. If, if That's a great I, point. You know, if I know that, that uh, stuff from the early career that, that got uh, people in my age group really tuned to what I was doing, if that's not in the set list, that's a bad idea. So I love playing those songs anyway. So we do, we, I think we focus like in three segments. We go, we're going to promote the new music, the ones that we think are working really well, uh, you know, translate to the stage live. And then we're going to take the songs that we know are the greatest hits among the fans. Uh, we have to do those. And then that last third is kind of up to us. And we're going to start to maybe see those hardcore fans have seen this like 20 times. And they're like, how come you never played that song, you know, mm -hmm. or something like that. So we brought them out on this tour. And so and we can do it because it's an evening with. But so. it's a smart way to do things, even when you're talking about Metallica or the Stones. Once again, I saw them last year. And they've got the hits that they do. And they've got the kind of the more obscurities that they choose and they actually have a fan vote for real obscure ones that's, once a night that's cool so everybody's happy yeah you know like you said because you can't not play you know Big Bad Moon or Summer Song or something like that yes even if you've played it 10,000 times and you're sick of it yeah well, I'm still working on it <laughs> I see it as an opportunity to finally figure out exactly which finger to use for that note or how long to phrase it it's tough I think I think that um with uh, with lyrics, you know, it, it almost g goes without saying. It's really hard to to uh, to shine a light on this properly. I've been struggling with trying to communicate this, but 
if if I'm writing, let's say, a song about a bag on the ground, all I have to say is I'm looking at a bag on the ground. Everybody knows exactly, you know, if they understand English, mm-hmm. they know exactly what I'm talking about. So the tone of the song is set by that first thing I say. And I could say the sky's on fire or, you know, uh, my shoes hurt, whatever it is. Uh, everybody knows exactly what I'm talking about. But the instrumental has got this burden of not having anything to cue them into what right. I'm writing about, right? So when I go out and I play these old songs, I'm thinking, I think I can get this better. I think I can just sharpen this a little bit more, whether it's a love song that I'm playing just the right amount of notes or it's a song like Ice Nine where you can just throw everything at it. You just keep throwing everybody's mm-hmm. kitchen sink at it and it just song just gets bigger and bigger but i we keep trying and i keep having fun doing it so how do you come up with a song title for like you said for for a, a piece of music that's that has no words mm. well i gotta say that the titles come first i'm inspired about a person um an event could be fun light could be tragic heavy something that's really you know holding my heart down for years or something like that could be something i read about on the internet that just makes me go oh my god look at that you know um i don't discriminate between light and frivolous and super heavy like if i want to write a song about a loved one dying i'm just going to write it and if i want to write a song about driving in a convertible on in the summer then i'll just write about that you know what Mm -hmm. i mean and then i look at it after it's done and i say does it fit on this record right so that way I'm not sort of um, I'm not being too clever about it because I always figure if you if you sit back and you say I'm really great and I'm clever and I can I can tell what's good and what's not I think I think you're really in a lot of trouble <laughs> you know what I mean it's better to write a whole bunch of stuff and sit back and see where, how do they relate together artistically which songs that you wrote let's say about uh, the loss of a, a friend or a loved one which one really connects you know where did which song was done the best way possible and then when i hand it over to the audience in a way i'm not going to force them to think about my tragedy you know mm-hmm. i can tell you this story that was this illustrates it quite well uh in uh, back in the early 90s I, I put out a record called the extremist and i yeah. had a song called crying on it and i didn't you know back then without the internet there wasn't a whole lot of information about anything you put records out and they just kind of existed and so this song was was really about me coming to terms with uh grieving for my dad and and thinking uh you know trying to say well there's good times you focus on the good times and and so there's always hope right so i put a lot into this song the performance and everything and i kept it to myself you know this was a song but except for the title right no one knows what i'm crying about Mm -hmm. right and uh, so we're off on our European tour, and we got contacted by a German sports TV program called RAN, R-A-N, probably RAN, maybe the way they pronounce it. And they were using that song as their theme song every Sunday night, and they would play the, the highlights of the week, and then they would use it for, uh, f- for the, the TV program's main, main music. And so they wanted us to come and play it on the show. And I was thinking, this is really, this is so wonderful, but at the same time, it's a total distortion of the artist's vision. Right. Right? Um, but of course, I didn't say anything about it. I was just so happy that they loved the song. And from then on, that song became like a romantic song for a lot of people. Hmm. And I didn't stand in the way, because I thought, well, it's none of my business anymore. Right. I wrote it. It's special to me. 
but it should be free. You know what I mean? To uh, it should be. Uh, free may, maybe isn't the right word, but no, people should be able to associate it as they like. I think it's like a good piece of art. What does it mean to you? Mm. What do these lyrics mean? What do they mean to you? Exactly. Yeah. That doesn't matter what it means to me because now it's, like you said, it's yours now. You're yeah. sharing it with, with the world. Yes. Yeah. You know, which makes sense. But it's funny, like, for example, on, on the new record, Not Champagne Supernova, um, <laughs> the, there's a song. That's a good title for a record, by the way. <laughs> yeah. Not Champagne, Champagne Supernova. Supernova. <laughs> there, there's a song on there called On Par- I'm saying the word wrong, Parag. You can say Peregrine or Peregrine. Par- I was going to say Peregrine. Either way. Yeah. I don't really know what that means. I'm not sure, but it seems something with very mythical, some kind of mythos. Yeah, peregrine can mean, uh, if you look it up in a dictionary, it means alien or strange or unusual. Um, there is a peregrine falcon, uh, okay. a, a, a falcon, a, a type of bird. And uh, I came about the word because I've been working on this uh, animated sci-fi show with some friends of mine. And there was this whole series where we're talking about this guy when he goes to this new planet this new reality he's uh confronted with these beings who are flying around and they're wearing these suits and i was thinking what would it be like if you suddenly could fly Mm -hmm. just you know not with a contraption but just with let's say putting on a t-shirt and suddenly you're going right away you'd say well i've always wanted to fly it'd be great (laughs) but you'd be scared out of your mind yeah right to suddenly be 800 feet in the air looking down thinking like what if this thing stops working (laughs) Yeah, yeah yeah so i was just inspired by that the whole look of our show and and uh, the, the the animated show and and the characters and so I wanted the, the song to have that intense adrenaline going through it. But it also has a little bit of an exotic exotic feel as well. Like it that does. song title matches completely the vibe of the song. Good, good, great. Which as an <laughs> instrumental, much like you know, summer song. Like you said, that's putting the top down on the convertible. Like yeah. that to me is a real brilliance of instrumental music. When you hear the song and it just it fits, the, it, it's exactly what you're trying to get across. I yeah. would assume. I, I'm you know? glad to hear you say that because that's what I really, really strive for all the time. Yeah, I remember Iron Maiden had an instrumental called Genghis Khan. Yes, yes, right? yeah, and yeah. you hear it and it's like it sounds like the march of the troops, of exactly. Genghis Khan. Yes, so, yeah. A couple last things. I know you're getting ready for your show, but how did you get the uh, nickname Satch? I, you know, I have to think that um, I was going to a uh, predominantly Irish Catholic school for the first five years of my education. And um, there was basically it was just Italians or Irish kids and everybody shortened all the names, everybody. So um, I became Satch because no one was going to go the distance and say Satriani. <laughs> so uh, to pronounce it first. Right. Yeah. Right? They look at it and they go, nah, Satch, that's yeah. it. You know, <laughs> I think for a while it was Sat maybe even. But um, that makes sense. Yes. Yeah, and, yeah. and I was the youngest of five. So even the even the priests and the nuns were sick of my family. By the time I came around, I was like, oh, one of you. Another one. <laughs> you know, the they kicked me out after five years. But uh, <laughs> I was saved by public school. But um <laughs> Yeah. But I, you know, remember, uh, what were they called? The dead end kids? There was a character called Satch, right? The tall, skinny yeah, guy? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I think that's, you know, maybe, because I, I don't think my friends knew about Louis Armstrong and Satchmo. <laughs> right, that's so. what Satchmo, yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's funny when we, we've been changing emails, and for some reason on my phone, your email always comes up as Joseph, Joseph. Saturant, but but it's J-O-S-E-P. Uh, There's no H. No H, they get so, rid of the H. Huh? So I was starting to think, like, was, is he Polish, Italian? <laughs> is he Joseph? Joseph, Joseph. <laughs> Yosef, come here. Yeah. Play the guitar. The worst Polish accent in the world. 
That's good. <laughs> Thank it's good you. that I've heard that now. I'll use Joseph, that next there you go. There's a song title for chance if you have a kind of a Russian sounding song you play. <laughs> Just very briefly, I know you're in, in deep purple for a tour or two. Yeah. Was there any of those Blackmore solos that were that were? Nothing is hard for you, I'm sure, but that were harder to figure out than others. Oh, wait a minute. Intricate well, I have to say that it's impossible to properly imitate Richie Blackmore. Really? Uh, in my mind, he's so totally original. He's so uh, idiosyncratic. Good luck to anyone who tries to step in those shoes. I mean, that... It always... I got to say that every, I enjoy playing with that band, and they were the greatest guys ever, but... My worst enemy was the me in my head who was a huge Blackmore fan. And every time we'd be playing, the me in my head would be saying, that's not how it goes. <laughs> like, what kind of guitar sound is that? It's supposed to be a Strat. And a, you know, it's just like, oh, it was such a struggle. So, yeah, when we did like Smoke on the Water, I just try to nail it note for note. Because I figured there's no other solo that works. That's it. That's yeah. the, he went to the mountaintop and he... He got the solo from high above, and that's it. And that's, so if you play something else, it's like, eh. And that's the secret of pl playing in a band like that. I mean, obviously, you want to interject some Joe, mm -hmm. but for a solo like that, you can't change it because the fans in the crowd yeah. know every air air band note of that. Yeah, right? Richie's, Richie's pretty special. I mean, there there's so many guitar players from that era that were so unique. They were so different from each other, and they were all idiosyncratic. They all just played what they could. But for us, the fans... It was golden. Every single note was golden. Mm -hmm. So um, I always, unless I got something from, you know, from Ian, you know, that you just go crazy, do whatever, you know. I mean, it's a very unusual band. They, it, I stepped in after they wanted to kill him, right? Because <laughs> Richie left in the middle of a show, in really? the middle of a tour. Just, really? I, just it, walked out? Here's a him? funny story. So I get the two cassette tapes from Roger, Roger Glover, to memorize the show for the tour. I have a week, right? And I'm flying to Tokyo to do the the Japanese tour, and uh, there's no guitar on the second cassette. So when I get to the first rehearsal, the first and only rehearsal, I said that when we got to one of those songs, I was like, do, so I lay out here? Like, what do I do? And they were all like shaking their heads going, no, you're supposed to play. Play whatever you want, you know? But there was no guitar because he was gone? Because he was gone, or he was hiding behind the amp, or, you know, they were deep into some family, you know, oh, yeah, yeah. rock and roll issues. I didn't want to get in the middle of it. <laughs> I was just I was just a fan who got to jump in the band for a couple of months. You know? Are you excited that Blackmore is going to be playing some uh, electric tunes again? You know, I really hope he does. I've never met the guy. I'd love to meet him. Well, you know, he's playing four shows this summer with Rainbow. Oh, well. Yeah, where, he, where, here, U.S.? Or? No, like uh, two festivals in Germany and two in England. But he put together a band, none, none of the mm. old Rainbow guys. Yeah. Uh, and he's doing Purple and Rainbow. And, wow. And, and, and yeah, he's doing a Blackmore We might be show. around. I mean, we go to Europe to do some festivals in June, so we'll be there for Just a month. Just catch a ride on Lars's plane. He's going. Yeah. Really? Maybe, yeah. Because huh? he'll charge me, I'm sure he will. <laughs> All those guys with their planes. <laughs> yeah, okay. Sammy hey, and Lars. Gotta, and... gotta pay for gas, man. Come on. That's right. There's no hitching a ride with those guys. <laughs> <laughs> Last question, man, and this might be a hard one to, add, to answer, but of all your solos that you play is there still one that you let you have the most fun playing oh that's a good question um i like playing all of them i think there are some that i get more uh anxious about you know like um if i'm playing a ballad it's like i there's no there's no variation that's acceptable really you mm -hmm. know i mean it's i always think of myself as i'm on a, a motorcycle i'm on a very narrow road one lane and it's on the edge of a mountain, and that's it. That's what playing a ballad is like when you're electric guitar. Because, you know, lead guitar can become 
a noisy piece of crap in about a second. You know what <laughs> yeah. I mean? It's so precarious, especially the way I run my rig. To get the guitar to sing, I'm running a lot more gain than usual. And it's all about control and, and you know, I'm avoiding the wrong feedback i'm just it's always it's kind of nerve-wracking in a way and of course i want to connect emotionally and so it makes the moment very highly charged but if i'm playing satch boogie i know that i can do almost anything as long as it's overt so i have to i have to say don't worry about looking stupid this is all about looking stupid (laughs) (laughs) so if you want to play the whole thing with your teeth just go ahead and do it or make noises or something so it's almost like there's a completely different psychology behind it you know sure yeah um but I'm surprised every night I play that, you know, as I'm playing, most of the time my eyes are closed. And But if I open my eyes a little bit and I look in the audience and I see one person just like in heaven because of something I did, then I know I'm doing the right thing. So I just I close my eyes again and I just go back to work, you know. <laughs> <laughs> well, Joe, you got to go to work right now. And thank you, man. We finally did it. We finally we, did. We I made looked, it happen. That wasn't too hard, was no, it? It was easy once we got in the room. <laughs> thank you, Yosip. Thank you very much for that new name, too. <laughs> Yosip. Yosip. All right, Joe Satriani is on the road. He's continuing his Surfing to Shockwave 2016 tour, a retrospective tour celebrating Joe's 30th anniversary in the biz. He's also doing the G4 experience in New York, August 8th to 12th. That's four nights of guitar wizardry featuring Satch, Steve Vai, Eric Johnson, Alex Skolnick, Mike Keneally. You want to see some shred? You want to see some virtuosity? You got to check this out, satriani.com. It's got all the details and ticket information. And, of course, Joe's latest album, Shockwave Supernova, is out now. Now available at Amazon.com, and you know the drill. You use the Talk is Jericho links. You paddle just uh, anything you want, and you help out my show, and you help out Satch himself if you buy that Satch, uh, Satch album. And don't forget, I got Amazon links for the USA, UK, Canada, A. Every time you see the uh, TIG Amazon links, use it. Amazon kicks back a small percentage to this show to help us cover production costs. You can buy anything you want on Amazon and become a Talk is Jericho Amazon warrior. If you buy something, if you buy the new uh, Satriani record, post a picture of it at Talk is Jericho. I will retweet you and follow you. What a bonus for you. You can find all my great sponsors at podcastone.com. Click on the Killer Deals button in the top right corner of the page. Then hit the Talk is Jericho button. You'll have easy access to uh, Amazon, ddpyoga.com slash Jericho, and the DDP Yoga Now app. You'll get three free months for that. Don't forget to check out True Car for the fastest buying car experience you can have. Pleasant all the way. And don't forget to hit that subscribe button on iTunes if you haven't already. That way you won't miss any of the great conversations and stories with the guests on my show. Go ahead and hit that subscribe button. Leave a five-star rating and a comment. I really read all the comments. I want to get to number one. Thanks to all you. Thanks for listening. Keep listening for the 60-second AP News headlines coming up next. Stay hard, stay hungry. Peace, love, and hugs. See you on Friday for a huge, huge show. Returning to the podcast is the returning Seth Rollins. That's right, one week after his big return to the WWE, he's right here on Talk is Jericho. Who else gets you that type of service? Who else gets you that type of guests? Who else gets you that type of rock and roll, baby? You know where you get it, right here on Talk is Jericho. We'll see you on Friday. Yeah, boy. You can download new episodes of Talk is Jericho every Wednesday and Friday at podcastone.com. That's podcastone.com.